Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Lord, you, you revealed yourself to Jacob in a dream. He went to sleep, unsure of, of God. And he woke up and he exclaimed that surely God is in this place and I did not know it. How true that is, definitely for my life, I'm sure for many of us here. We're going around along our our daily routine, our daily business, but you're everywhere. Your spirit is everywhere longing to wake us up, to wake us up to your reality, to wake us up to the truth of your nature, which can be summed up in unstoppable love, love that will not cease to pursue us until we are united with you again. So Lord, as we uh, talk about today's uh, message, my prayer is that you would clear away any distractions in our minds and our hearts. And no matter where we are in our understanding of you, our relationship with you, whether we're not sure who you are, whether we've forgotten who you are, whether we're completely certain today in your presence, would you clear away distractions so that we can hear your voice? Because only you can do it, Lord. We can't wake ourselves up. Only you can. So it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, welcome again. My name is Russ. I'm one of the pastors here at Hope Brooklyn. As Grace said, we are a new community of faith that believes no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. If you were not with us last week, we kicked off a new series that we are titling Sacraments, Divine Moments of Death and Resurrection. Sacraments is a... um, it's a, it's a concept from the Catholic tradition, but at its simplest, it gets at the idea um, that God is looking to communicate to us his creation. And he's looking to communicate through all sorts of mediums, through all sorts of institutions, uh, experiences. The Catholic tradition has seven primary ones. The Protestants, we took it and we took a razor to it and we brought it down to two. But I'm wondering if, if I can, like I said last week, if it's not too arrogant, I wonder that if we're both selling God short, that if God is attempting um, to communicate to his creation through all sorts of means, provided that it has a certain logic, a certain pattern um, that you'll see in literally every chapter of scripture when God shows up to talk with his people. And the logic is there's gonna be death. There's gonna be a form of us, a version of us. There's gonna be a part of us that has to be sacrificed, has to die. But for those with the courage or for those like Jacob, who don't even have the courage, but just it happens to him to go through that death, there will also be resurrection on the other side. One quick thing uh, before we jump in. Um, We announced this a while ago. I'm gonna come back to this and explain what this is in a bit. Um, But we had this new feature that we wanna engage the community more. So we have questions. Uh, If you turn on that front page, or no, back page, sorry, back page. It's got an anonymous number. So as we're going through these sermons, uh, these messages, if there are questions that come up, text them into that number or you can fill it out and drop it off. We'll explain that later. Um, and then we'll make a short little video to attempt answering it, maybe attempt a response. I'm not gonna say we have all the answers because we don't, but we might have a place to rest our eyes. Um, so again, that's another way to just engage one another. So it's not just me talking to you, but it's more of a conversation. All right, so today, We're gonna talk about the sacrament of pain. Yes, who's excited to talk about pain and suffering today? Awesome. (laughs) But I think it's an important one. I think that in experiences of pain, whether it's physical, spiritual, emotional, relational, if we're willing to listen and to receive it, we can hear God. There are two primary questions. Obviously a topic like this, is massive. There's no way that we can um, answer everything. So I want to focus in on two primary questions today. One, why does God seem to speak through pain? And two, what does he say? 
Why does he seem to speak through our pain and suffering? And what does he say? I I thought for a moment, uh, for those of you who have read the brilliant book, The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis, there there was a brief moment where I thought I would just take the entire introduction and just plagiarize it for you. Um, But then I realized I don't use words like chap or bloke, and so maybe it would be suspicious. Uh, But it's okay. My my brother taught me that as long as you plage 49% of it, it's not plagiarism. So there you go. You get a lot of C.S. Lewis quotes. But to kick it off, he has a phenomenal book called The Problem of Pain, and he has this line uh, in one of the chapters where he writes, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It's a common story. We find the divine most in our pain and suffering. Or if you're here and you would not call yourself a believer in God, would you still say that the moments of your life that were most formative, that, that changed you, that transformed you, were moments of deepest pain that you walked through? That's certainly been my story. When I think about uh, those, those times where I heard God clearest and was able to respond to him, it was after surgeries, extreme physical and emotional pain. It was in moments of intense rejection, feeling absolutely unlovely, unworthy. It was in moments of, of, of guilt where I feel like I had let people down tremendously. These are the moments, when I look back at my own story, these are the moments where I felt like God was most present, most real, and had something to say. Why? Why is this seemingly God's modus operandi? Why does he do this? Well, I think C.S. Lewis kind of embedded it in his line, right? It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. The world is deaf. The world is deaf. We cannot hear that which is outside our sphere of consciousness, our own sphere of consciousness. And in a really formative line in the prophet Isaiah for the people of Israel. Um, it's, it's in Isaiah 6. It sort of kicks off. Isaiah's in the throne room of God. God delivers this message and he says, Isaiah, I need to go take this message to the people of Israel. And we know it's super important because we find this same message on the lips of Jesus thousands of, or I guess 800 years later. Um, and and we, the, the evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John record Jesus as saying this as well. So we know this is an important line. But at the very start, before Isaiah's given 45 chapters worth of prophecies for Israel, the first thing God says to him is you're gonna go to this people and you're gonna say, make dull the hearts of this people. Their ears are clogged up. Their eyes are pasted over. Otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand in their hearts, turn and I would heal them. What's he saying? He's saying that there's, There's a fundamental blockage in our beings. There's a fundamental blockage in our natures that cannot see, hear, or comprehend the divine. Cannot see, hear, or comprehend outside of our own sphere of consciousness. But we're very sensory beings. I was reading this philosophical, um, or this book on philosophy this last week, and, and this guy made this claim, which I haven't checked it yet, so it's probably dangerous to say it, but he's a philosopher, so he's smarter than me. But uh, he basically said that, um, that we cannot know something outside of, of our senses. So, and, and the concept of philosophy, when you talk about abstract principles, you, you can't know it other than can you see it, hear it, touch it, can you taste it? Like our senses, we're sensory beings. But as we are, there's a fundamental blockage, pasted over eyes, clogged ears, a hard heart. It's a very visible image, isn't it? You can, you can feel it, that we're unable to experience and respond to that which is outside of us. It's almost like um, we sort of have the, the senses of an addict, right? I still remember my first beer. It was great. I just needed one. I was fine, you know? Unfortunately, that's not the case anymore, right? The more that we engage in senses, the more it dulls us. So you need more and more and more to get that same sense of feeling. Our senses have been dulled and conditioned. So we need something strong to reach us. And pain, pain seems to be that thing that rips open the scab, allows the blood to gush forth, 
and gets to us in a way that nothing else can. In a sense, pain seems to sober us and wake us from this dream. Two years ago, my grandfather passed from pancreatic cancer. Uh, our family gathered. Um, we knew he had stopped treatment, so it wasn't a shock. It was sad, but it wasn't a shock. Three months later, my cousin, who's younger than me, died of an asthma attack. And so the family on the same side, we gathered again. And that one was very painful. And I don't know if you've ever had these moments. Maybe death brings them up. But in these moments, when I saw my brothers, I have two brothers, and I, I see them maybe twice a year. I love my brothers. They're very dear to me. When I saw them, when I, when I touched down in the airport um, for, for my cousin's funeral, I saw them differently. And I, I, don't, I, I lack language to explain. But I almost saw them through the filter of this deep pain, of this deep death. And they just felt weightier and heavier. And I was so much more grateful for them. And maybe you understand what I'm talking about in these moments of extreme pain. And when I hugged them, I didn't want to let go because maybe what I, what I was feeling in that moment was just my gratitude for their existence. I saw them differently. In a sense, I think that's what pain does. Pain wakes us up. Pain sobers us up, throws water on our faces. And we're like, what, what actually is this world that we're living in? There was an article I read of a hospital chaplain who did it for 40 years. And, and you already know where this is going. She, she was a chaplain for 40 years. She ministered to the sick and the dying. And then she wrote her, her reflections on it. Guess what no one ever says at their death? No one ever says, I wish I worked more. She goes, I was, did it for 40 years, thousands of people. And not one time did I hear someone say on their deathbed, I wish I would have worked more. Everyone, bar none, says, I wish I would have spent more time with my family. I wish I would have loved people better, right? This is the stuff, the visceral, tangible stuff, which seems to only be elicited in moments of pain. Now, before we go further in this, I wanna address a common rebuttal because I don't know where people are on their spiritual journey. And if this is you, awesome. Thanks for being here. Also come talk to me. I'd love to have more of a conversation. But one of the common rebuttals to a situation like this that says God speaks clearest in our pain is uh, that God is a crutch, right? Religion is a crutch for making meaning in a meaningless existence. Uh, religion is an opiate. Ironically, I'm going with the metaphor that, that pain wakes us up so that we can hear God. Others say that in this pain, we go to religion because it dulls our senses, it numbs us. And I would say a couple things to that. First, um, <laughs> not the Judeo-Christian God. <laughs> that if it were true that we went to religion and we went to this God to make us better, to make meaning out of a meaningless existence, I can find far better gods to go to than this Jesus. That's the first thing I'd say. And we'll see that in due time. As C.S. Lewis goes, he goes, ah, and he was a, a, a very um, avowed atheist for a while. And he goes, I didn't go to Christianity to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of pork would do a much better job. And I think he's getting at something. If we're really looking in this pain to find meaning, there are better stories out there than this one. And even those who, um, and we'll talk about this in a bit, even those who in this experience of extreme pain say, I reject this God, I would say with tremendous humility, and I don't know all the, the instances that perhaps they're rejecting a version of God, especially of the Christian God, that I too would also reject. Perhaps the, this, the Judeo-Christian God, perhaps what Jesus gives to us, the, what he says in our pain, is a lot different than we might expect. <clears throat> the next thing I would say is about the concept of modern atheism. And modern atheism is this idea, the denial of all spiritual realities. But what I want to say is that's a recent phenomenon. It's a recent phenomenon for most of human history and across the world, it demonstrates some form of worldview that includes the divine, divine agency. There was a really fascinating article in The Guardian a while back about this guy um, who, was, who was an atheist, um, who uh, PhD, really smart guy, worked on Wall Street, and then he started to take pictures um, of the lives of, of the addicts in his city. He started taking pictures to document, to create a book. And his hypothesis is that when he would get around these people, that they would be atheists like him. 
And the reason why is because he thought, the reason why he rejected God is because look at all the pain and suffering in the world, right? And he thought, who knows pain and suffering like those in the city who have been totally pushed out by the systems, been totally oppressed, been totally disenfranchised, devalued, dehumanized. They know pain and suffering. They're gonna reject God too. What he found unequivocally is that all of them believe in God. Everyone, there's no atheists down there in the pain and the suffering of the world. And in one poignant instance, he was uh, talking with a woman and he took her picture and she goes, how do you want to be, and he asked, how do you want to be described? And she goes, as I am, as a prostitute, a mother of six and a child of God. And I thought, yeah, she gets it. She gets it better than I do. What he found as he engaged in this practice is that the only people who practice his form of atheism, an intellectual atheism, not an existential atheism, but an intellectual one. The only people who practice that were people who looked just like him. Educated, intelligent, wealthy, not living in a war-torn country, not experiencing the food insecurity. They were complaining about the pain in the world, but they weren't actually experiencing pain. Pain was out there. Pain was in their minds. It was a concept. It wasn't something they could touch and feel. And as he writes, soon, quote, soon I saw my atheism for what it is, an intellectual belief most accessible to those who have done well. I see a group so removed from humanity and so removed from the ambiguity of life that they find themselves judging those who think differently. And that line that captured me was so removed from humanity. I think that's getting at something. And we talked about a bit about this last week, how we in the West, we've created a society where it's possible to be removed from humanity. It's possible to go days and weeks and months with our basic needs met, not wondering where the meal's coming from, to not feel the impingement of death in any sense. And perhaps, what I, what I wanna contend, perhaps pain and suffering brings us back to our normative human condition. Perhaps pain reminds us that we are fragile and mortal and dependent creatures as those who are disenfranchised by society, they already know in a visceral way daily. Wesley was right. Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. Perhaps our secure that was a Princess Bride reference for anyone who didn't know. <laughs> Perhaps our secure, intelligent, industrialized society, devoid of pain, devoid of ambiguity, is dulling us, dulling our senses like a narcotic from experiencing our fundamental human condition. Creatures who suffer and who are going to die. Pain removes the veil and stares us in the face and says, what do you say now? your move. What do you say now? Now, there are various types of pain and suffering, but I think if you trace them back, physical pain, emotional pain, relational pain, they all trace back to the same existential root, which is some form of separation, some form of break, some form of fissure of it's just, there's a, a separation, there's, a, there's a, a break in our identity. Pain points, if we're willing, if we have the courage to trace it back to its source, pain points to the fundamental break in our idealized wholeness. We have this ideal of us being whole creatures and pain, if we follow it back, physical, emotional, relational, it points back to the idea that it's broken. The ideal is shattered, it's separated. It's the core wound of every human, which is why it's fascinating. Research has shown that even the most ardent intellectual atheist in moments of extreme suffering, pray. Pray to all sorts of gods, but they pray in contradiction to their most strongly held philosophical convictions. Perhaps there is something within the human condition under extreme existential duress that involuntarily looks to God or gods or something to save it, which is also fascinating 
text me that question. I want to explain more. It's fascinating because if there is a religious inclination in the human condition, which does not, see, does not seem to be inferred from our environment, our natural environment is pain and suffering and death. But how have we always been leaning into this idea that there's a good God out there, right? If our natural environment is extreme pain, why do we assume in like chaotic pain, meaningless pain, why do we assume that the gods are good and they want to save us? And that's always been the case. Pain sobers us and forces us to look at the core wound and ask what God might say about it, which is why I can't explain any further why God is not a crutch because we'll be speaking two different languages. If you haven't heard him in the pain, if you haven't heard his voice there, I can't reason with you to that place, unfortunately, other than to leave you with another C.S. Lewis line. If I find within myself longings, which nothing in this world can satisfy, perhaps I must conclude I was made for another world. And I'm saying if we trace back our pain to their core wound, we're all finding some brokenness, some, some separation. But we all have this idea that we're an ideal, we should be whole, but instead we're separate. Why? Why do we have that unless it were true that we should be whole? That it's not all meaningless and chaos and random, that there is a creator with a story for us. Pain is our native language, friends. Now it is. It's the language we've chosen and God can now communicate best and clearest in that language. As we read, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I don't think it's that God opposes the proud in the sense that if you're proud, he's angry at you, he rejects you. I think he opposes the proud based on Isaiah 6 because the proud have clogged ears and pasted over eyes. He opposes because they can't hear him. He, they can't engage or relate. But the humble, those who, who uh, know their pain, know their suffering, know their, their real condition, they're in a state to actually hear God. And when that happens, when pain occurs, God and us are finally speaking the same language. As another writer puts it, God wants to give us something but cannot because our hands are full. There's nowhere for him to put it. God wants to give you something, but can't because your hands are full. There's nowhere for him to put it. Pain is death. <laughs> I don't even need to explain that one. Pain and suffering is death. And if you're in pain today, if you're experiencing, if you're courageous enough, if you're willing to go with us and stare that fundamental separation in the face, perhaps your hands are trembling. You might be willing to, to let go for a moment and see what God might say and how he might want to fill your hands with something else. So what does God say? What does Jesus have to say? And in order to answer this one, I kind of got to just tell the story. <laughs> in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There was a creator. And we learn later that the, the essence of his nature, the best way to describe who this creator is, is with the word love. God is love. Now love is, we don't have a, uh, we have a vague understanding of what love is now. Love is not some fearful tolerance where I, I don't want to step on toes. No, love, in the, especially in the Greek sense, agape, uh, the best way to describe it is to describe it as sacrificial. Love sacrifices itself and love is steadfastly committed to the object of his love. Love is sacrificially committed to the beloved. And this God, creates a world that comes from it, that is heading toward it, that exists in it. There is unity. It's not the same as we talked about last week. It's not that the world is God, the world is love. No, the world was created by love. So the world exists through love, but that's not the same thing as saying the creation is 
God. And at first, as us as humans in this world, our, our, our natures are so perfectly united with love that our choices um, are natural and easy. We know in every moment what we want to do because we're so absorbed with love that we just naturally participate in the divine dance. It'd be like this. So I don't know if you've ever gone to a really great play or a really great musical and it's like three hours and you're just absorbed. You're engrossed by this world. It's changing your paradigms. You're just like a sponge absorbing this world. And then you step outside into the cold and into Times Square. And, and even for a brief moment before it fades, right? For a brief moment, you're still in that world. And you see Times Square through the veneer, through the filter of that world. You might even jump on a lamppost and start singing or something, right? We do stuff like that because we're so full of the spirit of that, that play we just saw, the spirit of that world. It's kind of like that. In the beginning, we were so full of love. We had no pasted over eyes or clogged ears or, or dull hearts. We were so full of love, though we were united that we knew exactly what to do in every moment. And it's, it's ironic because now death and pain wake us up to see differently. But then love allowed us to see differently. Well, at some point in the story, it comes into our consciousness. Whether it's through a fruit or something else, it does not matter. But it comes into our consciousness, the possibility that we don't need God. I don't know how it happens, but perhaps we don't need love to exist. Perhaps we can be our own creators and our own sustainers. And thus we separate from the relationship. We pull apart, which is a self-contradiction in terms because we are nothing but adjectives. God is the noun. I'm gonna use a bunch of different metaphors today. God is the noun. We are the adjectives that describe the noun, that qualify the noun, but the noun is the substance. The noun fills the adjectives with their meaning, right? If we separate ourselves from the noun and know you grammar nerds, there can't be substantival adjectives, all right? Just go with me. We don't have the noun anymore. We're just an adjective, just hanging out there with no noun to describe. We've lost the life source. We've lost what filled us. We've lost love. And so separated from love, what enters into our beings and into our world is pain and suffering. Pain, friends, is fundamentally rooted in that separation. In that ripping apart of things that were perfectly united that resulted from a single thought that we can rule ourselves. So begins the history of our world, our relationships, our civilizations, and and. I beg you to do an inventory, to think through our relationships, our civilizations, our wars, our economies, our very souls are divided from one another, divided even in ourselves. And everything that has happened and happens is a result from that fundamental pride and separation. We, in our story, we use the word sin, which is a big word and it's been used lots of different ways some right, some wrong, but at its core, it's a catch-all to describe this separated world. A world ripped apart in so many ways over and over. Uh, Aristotle used the word, it's the Greek word hamartano, sin. And he gave the, the image of um, a target and a bow and arrow. And when the arrow does not directly hit the bullseye, it's missed the mark in some way. That is to sin. It's a world that is miss the mark. It's the separation from the ideal. It's that moment when you trace back to that fundamental loneliness that we all feel. And we wonder, why do we feel lonely in our core? Why? Even if we have friends, even if we have deep relationships, why is there still this core loneliness? And we imagine there is a hole, there is an ideal, and we're just missing it. That's getting at the idea. We've missed the mark somehow, and no one, friends, can claim innocence. We are all ripped open, and we rip one another open. It's our native language. It's what we do. All we know now is the language of separation. Well, this is the, the chapter which is truly mysterious. Well, actually two chapters, but one that is absolutely astonishing. 
is that love, even though we've ripped ourselves away from God, he tempts to pursue his beloved. He comes after us. He chooses to repair the relationship, even though now the only language his creation knows, his beloved knows, is separation. But how? How can he do that? Because he can no longer be united with us, right? Our, our, our ears are clogged. Our eyes are pasted. We can't experience him internally. So God attempts to reach us, to repair the relationship through external means. He comes to one people and he calls them and he begins to reveal his name to him, the name of love. And we know this even in, in the calling of Abraham. He says, uh, God tells him, through you, every nation's gonna be blessed. Your people will be a blessing for all people. Through one people, externally in our relationship, we're gonna bless all. And at, at times it feels harsh. When you read the story of Israel, love feels harsh. But if we accept the premise that we're in no state to understand fully what love is, then maybe there's something going on. Or as, as Lewis puts it, love may indeed love the beloved when her beauty is lost, but not because it is lost. Love may forgive all infirmities and love still in spite of them, but love cannot cease to will their removal. Love is more sensitive than hatred itself to every blemish in the beloved. Of all powers, love forgives most, but condones least. Love is so pleased with little, little steps, but demands all. God begins to pursue unity, even though Israel is not in a fundamental state to understand it and to start to foster the relationship, recreate this relationship between love, God, and creation. And then we reach the chapter that is utterly unique to Christianity. The chapter where the source of life himself, from whom all came and to whom all is headed and through whom all exist, enters history. Now, this myth, the myth of, of the dying and rising God, uh, the, the fable, it's present in other faith traditions. And I would expect that. If we all come from one source of life, I would expect the residue through all sorts of, of backgrounds and, and religious traditions. But what is unique about the Christian story is this is the only one we're saying, when I say I worship Jesus, I'm not saying I worship a fable. I'm not saying I worship a myth. I'm saying that the son of God, the one who is God or is one with God or is son of God has entered into history and become just like you or me. And that is unique. That is nothing else like it. Love enters into history, is born among the Jewish people. And then guess what he does? He lives a life of love. <laughs> He lives a life of perfect identity, perfect relationship with God, which means he confounds and he destroys and he upheaves wherever he goes. Why? Because our very systems, our systems of power are built on fear and are built on control and pride and they totally evaporate in his presence because we've now, we're in the presence of the noun. We're flimsy adjectives. We have nothing, it's just hot air. But when the noun shows up, the house of cards topples. We see his power and everywhere he goes, he reverses pain. People who are sick, people have diseases, he heals them. Reverses physical pain. Dead children, he raises to life, restores them to their parents. Reverses relational pain. He goes to the poor and the destitute and the forgotten and the overlooked of society and he eats with them and he stays with them. Reverses emotional, societal pain. His life is one walking example after another of reconciliation, of reversing the wounds from our mutinous, rebellious hands. So we have a choice, right? We are totally confronted with the true power of the world in a way that we've never seen in any other history books. We can confess that this guy is who he says he is, that he's come in the name of the Father to restore us to God, 
Or we can say, nah, we got this. This is too much. We'll have to lay down our lives again. We'll have to surrender. We'll have to enter into a relationship and not be in control of our own existence. So we do what we've always done to everyone who threatens us. We kill him. We put him to death. We hang him on a cross. But this time, something different happens. We've taken the bait. Jesus is being crucified. Love is on a cross right now. Love in the flesh, love as a historical person. He's on a cross, bleeding out and dying. And this is what we read. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, when some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and got a sponge and he filled it with wine vinegar and he put it on a stick and he offered it to Jesus to drink. And the rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and they exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. The creator, the author, steps into history and on the cross, the one who is perfectly united with love, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Anyone else relate with that cry today? My God, my God, why have you forsaken us? Why have you abandoned us? On the cross, God is separated from God. What does God have to say to us in our pain and suffering? Which is rooted in that fundamental separation from God. What does God have to say to us in our pain and suffering? Rooted in our own separation from God. Nothing. He doesn't say a word. He joins us in it. On the cross, we see God separated from himself joining us in it, which is why in deep existential pains, words, even true words, they feel false, don't they? They feel like they're not helping because they're not. Because in the story that we have, Jesus doesn't even offer words to our deep suffering. He joins us in it. He joins us in this separation from God, in the abandonment. As Peter Rollins writes, all religions have generated their atheistic oppositions. But in the crucifixion, the atheistic opposition, the existential one, not intellectual, but the existential atheistic opposition is brought into the very heart of the Christian faith. The felt experience of God's absence as the fundamental way of entering into the presence of God. The Christian story is the only one that I've come across that takes sufficient stock of the deepest pain in this world. And it takes stock of it because it doesn't attempt a tepid, lukewarm answer. God joins us in it and says, now we're together. We're together. God suffered the same separation. There's a line in the Lord of the Rings. I know I quote a lot of the Lord of the Rings, but there's a line in the third one where, where Frodo and Sam, they're on a task and they're trying to destroy, destroy the ring of power. And Frodo's the one carrying it. And Sam's like his, his big supporter. He's going with him everywhere. And there's a line where Sam thinks that Frodo's about to die. And it's really poignant because Sam loves Frodo. And Frodo seems to be passing out. And he goes, no, Frodo, don't go. Don't go where I can't follow you. 
don't go where I can't follow you. Our fundamental condition, friends, is as those separated from God. And the entire story of Jesus has been God crying out to us, please don't go where I can't follow you. Don't go. Don't go where I can't follow. But he's God. He can go everywhere. He's, he's in every time and place. He's in every state. He's in every mode of being except one. The one mode of the human condition that God has never experienced where we've gone and he hasn't been able to follow is what? Is separation from God, from himself. We went one step further. We separated ourselves from love and God has never known that mode of being. And on the cross, God joins us in that fundamental condition. Jesus, the son, is separated from the father. Therefore, there is no longer any mode of being in the human nature where God has not joined us. He's followed us unto death. And I don't know if you caught this, but in the Jewish tradition, in the temple, there's a curtain and the curtain separates a part of the temple where, where regular Jews can go. And then behind the curtain is called the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. And that's where the presence of God is, where only the high priest can go. But on the moment when Jesus breathes out his last and gives up his spirit, on the moment where God is separated from God, what happens to the curtain? It rips. When God is separated from God, we're no longer separated from God because he's with us in every condition of our being even unto the deepest fundamental pain and death. Because there is no experience we've had that God has not also now had with us, we're not separated from him. We're together in everything. The cross is nothing short than Jesus saying to the world, first, I'm not gonna heal it. First, I'm gonna be with you. That's step one. And because I've joined you in it, now we're not separated anymore. The curtain is done. We're together. Or as George MacDonald writes, the son of God suffered unto death, not that we might not suffer, but that our sufferings might be like his. The curse is reversed. Which is why I can't talk to those who are in pain and suffering and aren't willing to engage it or those who haven't experienced it because their hands are full. Your hands are full. But right now, if in the pain and suffering, if you sense that separation and you've heard the story right now, as we read in Hebrews today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Today, if you hear his voice and there's a certain splash of cold water awakening you, sort of sobering you up, making you aware of the reality of this world. If your heart is pained and grieved and you feel the weight of all the suffering, you see the separation everywhere. But today you hear him, you see Jesus, you see who he represents. Love has come in the flesh to join us, to follow us, to die so that we don't have to be separated from God anymore. Don't harden your hearts any further because you don't know when the next time is gonna be. What's the response for us? If that's the death, then what's the life that comes in this sacrament? To surrender. It's an ugly word in our day and age. Surrender. It's the word that accepts the story. When Jesus shows up, and he says, this is who my God is. This is who your father is. And he's for you and he loves you and he wants to be with you. What's the response when people hear this story? It says often they're cut to the heart and they repent. That's the church word. Repentance is nothing more than saying, I need this relationship with God. And I know I can have it because I see Jesus. Yes, Jesus has reversed the curse. Yes, we can be with God now. 
There's no place we can go that he can't follow and be with us, but we can still reject his offer. We can still reject the invitation or we can say yes. But either way, pain is gonna become the tool toward love, having fully back his creation. It's like George MacDonald once called God a consuming fire, a consuming fire. But as he writes, it's not that the fire will burn us if we do not worship thus, right? He's not petty, angry that we're saying no. It's that the fire will burn us until we worship thus. Yea, we'll go on burning within us after all that is foreign to it has yielded to its force, no longer with pain and consuming, but as the highest consciousness of life, the presence of God. Because we took the bait and we killed Jesus, the fire has entered into the very heart of the cosmos. Why? Because it's entered into the, the one place in the world, the one place in the universe where God hadn't been separation from God. Because he's there, now the fire's at the core and it's starting to work itself inside out. It's burning everything up, which is foreign to it. God will have back his world. He'll have it back. And we have two choices. We yield to the fire because the fire burns. The fire brings pain and suffering. We yield to it and we allow it to become a tool of purification, to purify us in that relationship where we continue to say no and we continue to resist. And the fire keeps burning because that's all it can do until there's nothing left for it to burn up. Till all that is foreign, till all that is um, separated from God is no more. And love has returned back. He will have his creation back. And if you feel the flames, no matter where they burn, your invitation is to surrender to it, to yield not knowing fully what's next, but to surrender to this relationship, to surrender to this life with God. The first step was God joining us in our pain, joining us in our separation. But enter this relationship and the pain turns to joy. And how do we know this? See, that's the, the last question. How do we know we can trust all this? Because we had gone one step where God hadn't been able to follow. He joined us in death. But then Jesus went one step further. Three days later, Jesus of Nazareth, the historical man, was raised from the dead. And because he's alive, he says, for all those who enter into a relationship with love, with my father, through me, for all those who join themselves to me, this will be your fate too. You will live with me. The fire will burn away everything that is separated from my God, from love, and you will live forever with us. And that is our hope that allows us to join and to surrender and confess that Jesus alone is in control. Because he's with us. He's with us. Will you pray with me? Jesus, your story overwhelms me. You're a God who's literally done nothing wrong. You are love himself. You are sacrifice and you are commitment and you are steadfast and you are selfless. And you created a world to be with you in that love, to be in that unity. Instead, what's followed is a history of separation, a history of pain and suffering. And we know, because if we're able to be honest right now in this moment, as we look inward, there is a deep pain which no answer has been able to satisfy. And so right now, Lord, for each person in this room, wherever their pain is, wherever their suffering is, would you speak to them? And my prayer is that they would surrender and receive your words that say, I'm not gonna fix the pain yet. First, I'm gonna be with you.
You're not alone in that. You're not alone in that. Your God has come. He's walked among you. He's lived with you. And you're not alone. And that that deep fear that we have, because we know we're going to die one day. Could we hear your words right now, Jesus said, don't be afraid. I've joined you even in death. I am for you, I am with you. Be in my love. That's all I'm asking. Enter into friendship with me and receive the love of God. And so wherever you are today, on your own journey of faith, whether it's the first time if you're here and you're experiencing some trembling in your hands. The invitation is for you this very day. Perhaps you're not here by coincidence to let it go what's ever in your hands and to pick up friendship with God through Jesus. To surrender your pain and to allow him to enter into it. To be there with you. And if you're here and you just feel like you've been going through the motions of life, there's been dryness, there's been suffering, but you've kind of dulled it, you've narcotized it through ambition and through uh, corporate success and through busyness or whatever. But you know that when you sort of silence those things and, and get introspective, you know that the suffering is so deep. Would you once again this very day surrender your heart if you hear his voice and allow him in to be friends with you again. I know there are tons of questions, but surrender comes first. We do not understand so that we can believe, we believe, we trust so that we can therefore understand him. Jesus, enter into this space. minister to your people. Tell us to set it all down and pick up love with you instead. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.